Many of you know I'm a true advocate for taking supplementation to optimize your health, and one of the best things you can do is choose the right collagen. Collagen is a building block to your entire body. I was introduced to Sparkle Wellness product Skin Boost Plus about a year ago, and I've been taking it ever since. Now they've launched a new bone strength product that I'm super excited about. New Osteo Boost Collagen is formulated to improve bone mineral density, something we all need to think about as early as age 40. Made with award-winning collagen peptide known as Fortibone, the product really has led to meaningful results for people who need significant improvement in this area, including those suffering with fractures or broken bones. OsteoBoost is a great choice for anyone over the age of 40 to reduce the risk of bone mineral density loss, a major precursor to the diagnosis of bone-related diseases. Right now, you can get any of the Sparkle Wellness collagen supplements from Amazon or from their website, lovesparkle.life, and use my code DRFIT for 20% off. That's D-R-F-I-T at lovesparkle.life for 20% off their new product, OsteoBoost. to the Fit and Fabulous podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. It is so great to have you here today. I have an incredible guest that I cannot wait to introduce you to. His name is Jason Prawl, and he is a health educator, practitioner, author, and filmmaker. In 2018, his independent research and experience as a practitioner led him to create the Human Longevity Project. It's a nine-part film series that uncovers the true nature of chronic disease in our modern world. He's currently working on his next film series that explores ancient methods of healing, mind, body, and soul from indigenous cultures around the world. He's recently released his best-selling new book titled Beyond Longevity, A Proven Plan for Healing Faster, Feeling Better, and Thriving at Any Age. Jason, welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. So I did a little digging on you and I can't wait <laughs> no. to talk about the human longevity, uh, project that you did where that's what we're going to pick apart today, uh, in our talk, but tell us a little bit about your background, because I heard before you got into this space, you were a mechanical engineer. And I feel like everybody has the story that somehow led them to like their, their true purpose and passion. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? Like the, um, I followed that path, not for any other reason other than essentially cultural conditioning and following what I was sort of naturally good at. Right. And I had a limited perspective as a child, like most of us do as we go through high school and college, perhaps that uh, of what the world looks like. Right. And so I had this idea that I was good at math. I was good at science. I was good at systems thinking, you know, so only because I was good at those things, I had a moderate interest in them, right? Like we all kind of like the things that we're good at, right? I mean, I was good at, at baseball and football. And so I played that in college. And then I did engineering because I don't know what else to do. And it has a decent status symbol in the States. And, and so all these things, right? So I just followed kind of this thing, but it wasn't, I had no idea what I was really passionate about. I had no idea. Of course, this was in 1999, right? The internet hadn't even exploded yet. So little did I know what was going to be unfolding over the next 20 years, right? And what the possibilities would be. And so I just kind of followed a path and it served me really well in a sense, like it set up a, a good life for me. Um, you know, it, it allowed me to to do the things that I thought I wanted to do. And then I kind of woke up one day and I say one day, and it was probably over the course of weeks, months, years, but, but I, I realized at some point that the way that I was living wasn't conducive to, to my, my true passion, my dream, 
right? Like the real dream that I have in this world. And, and, and it wasn't even fully elucidated um, to that degree, but, I, but I, I recognized that I wasn't living it, right? I was sort of stuck. I had a, I had a mortgage. Um, I had a, a job that was successful. I had all the things that I guess that people, that I idealized or that it was inculcated in me in my sort of cultural conditioning, but it wasn't really exciting to me. And the things that were exciting to me were, were essentially nothing tying me down, ultimate freedom to, to explore, to, to get curious, about the world and who I am and my place in it and what I am here to do and all the big questions we have in life. And I felt like I couldn't live that, right? And, and it was a lot of my own health conditions and, and issues that I had starting at 13 years old, um, chronic joint pains in my knees, then it moved to my shoulders um, and I had skin issues in college. So I had a, just a, a number of things that, that the traditional medical system wasn't able to to, to help me at all. Like they, you know, they were giving me steroid creams or giving me like sell some blue to put on my face. Um, right. Like, I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous, the stuff that I was doing and, and none of it really worked. And so it forced me to look outside of that system to figure out how to help myself. Um, and so it was through that process that I just kind of woke up to a lot of a lot of things, right? I mean, um, obviously today we call it red pilled, right? So I, I didn't really, we didn't have that term back then, but I was essentially getting red pilled on all kinds of things, right? Uh, the government collusion with big pharma and big ag and, you know, and, and big medicine, like all that stuff and, and, and the, just the, the messiness that was there, right? And it's really just people acting um, out of their own best interests and where the incentives lie, right? So I wasn't even demonizing individuals that were in these positions or what have you, but the incentive structure was so skewed and so ridiculous that it wasn't it wasn't set up to serve me, the one suffering from joint pain or skin conditions, right? And so, um, so through that, I, I recognized that I had an opportunity to not only help myself but help other people, right? And I realized that if, if I was suffering with the sort of minor things, relatively speaking, um, that I was dealing with, and how painful psychologically, emotionally, and physically it was for me, then there's a lot of other people that might be able to use um, my services, my uh, you know, awareness around some of these things to help get them out of that system, right? And I realized that, and because it's so convoluted and because it's such a corrupt system, and I speak like just generally speaking, if we can pull people out of this sort of big pharma nightmare that they get stuck in, and that's going to serve them unbelievably well, right? So not only are they going to stop lining the coffers of the insurance companies and, and big pharma, you know, and the system that's just broken, um, but now they can actually start living, right? And, and, and that's the thing. Like when you are caught in a chronic disease state and you have chronic symptoms, perhaps unknown syndromes, like your sole focus, like it takes so much of your life force energy to just hold it together, let alone to try to improve, right? And that means that you can't live your purpose. That means you can't even explore your purpose, or at least it's hard to know where to go with that, right? And so um, so that, that was really the driver for me to exit that engineering world, something I'm not passionate about. I threw away like a really good career to start this sort of online health coaching, functional medicine style of practice that I wasn't really familiar with, um, but I knew that health world pretty well. Then I had to, just, had to learn the business side, which was a, um, that was something else. Like that was a totally different thing that I wasn't prepared for. And I lost a lot of money uh -huh. in the process. And it was an education that I, that I essentially paid for, but, but ultimately it got me to a position where I could work and live in the way that serves my soul, that really I, I can embody this sort of passionate living in everything that I do. And I'm, I'm beyond grateful for it. And, and looking back now, I can see that, that all of that was divine, that it was all for my best interest. Um, I just didn't have the clarity to sort of see the end game. Yeah.
yeah, having your passions is one thing, monetizing them is another thing. Totally. And, uh, but I, the whole time you're talking, I'm just over here, like slow clapping in my head because I work in Western medicine. I work in traditional medicine and I resonate with a lot of the things that you're saying. And, uh, which is why I spend so much of my free time outside of my actual clinical practice, doing things like this and recording podcasts like this, because I think these are really things that people need, you know, the wool pulled off their eyes. So you're working as a mechanical engineer, you're sick, you don't feel fulfilled. You have these, like these other passions that you want to pursue bridge the gap for us going from that to this human longevity project that you did and tell us the scope of this, this project, because this involves a lot of people, producers traveling. And that's, that's not like in an easy, that's not an easy undertaking. That's not just like, Oh, I think I don't want to be a mechanical engineer anymore. (laughs) That's like, that's like a big undertaking. Totally. And, and, and it is in a sense, right. But, and, and you know, this that when you're in your, when you're in your purpose, when you're living your dream, you can take on the most unbelievably difficult, challenging, time-consuming tasks, and they don't drain you, they fuel you, right? So that's the irony, you know, that I found myself in. But to the essence of your question, you know, and the Human Longevity Project is a nine-part film series that we created to, to try to elucidate sort of the why we're so sick in the West and what's going on in other parts of the world where people are living to beyond 100, um, relatively disease-free, right? Like that's a really interesting paradox that we are, are seeing right now. And it's, and it's even uh, been more exposed, I'd say, over the last few years. Um, but, but really it started in my clinical practice, right? And I was seeing people with autoimmune conditions and cancer and digestive issues, skin conditions, infections, you know, like you name it. And then unknown syndromes. That was really what I would get was all these, these people coming to me because I didn't advertise my services, um, partially because I didn't really know how to advertise like what I was doing. And I, I didn't really feel like I had, um, like an MD, I didn't have any credentials behind me. And so uh, I could only prove myself to the people that I worked with and then they spread the word. So everything was word of mouth. And so it came from the people that I was working with and, and, and I would get these these people that would come to me in just dire straits, right? They'd seen eight functional medicine doctors, three naturopaths, two acupuncturists, like they've seen everybody and and every one of those specific, um, professions is fantastic, right? So it's, it's not a matter of the profession is bad or inadequate or insufficient. It's just the person that they saw weren't able to see the bigger picture, right? And, and for whatever reason. Um, and so I saw a lot of these people and I was able to get I was able to move them forward. Many I was able to get sort of to, to, let's say, fully better to the point where they felt like, okay, I'm back to normal, right? Whatever that means. And then some, I, I couldn't quite get there, right? And so there was something looming in the background there that I, that I was missing, that I wasn't seeing. But for a lot of these people, for every person pretty much that came to me, you know, we could run the functional test, right? We can look at the metabolomics. We could, we could look at, uh, you know, circadian rhythm, uh, physiology, sorry, cortisol patterns, melatonin patterns, their conversions, are they methylating? We could do all these functional tests where you could look at the microbiome and that was fantastic and it was very helpful. But what I found was, is that at the end of the day, people would come to me and I thought it was really, we, we didn't really want to start with testing because I could analyze their lifestyle and their behaviors and say, well, there's a lot of things we can clean up without even running a test. So I don't need to look at your cortisol patterns and melatonin patterns because I know how you're sleeping based on what you're telling me. And I, I, can, I can essentially guess what those patterns are going to look like. And not only that, I know, I know how we can improve them without doing any testing, right? So I was, I was basically teaching this sort of lifestyle medicine, right? How do we improve circadian rhythm, right? This idea that your biology is functioning uh, based on these inputs, primarily light and exercise and food, right? And this, this timing of your biology, how do we improve the metabolic function? 
right, at the cellular level. Are you metabolically flexible, right? Are you able to burn fat uh, for fuel as well as glucose for fuel in the way that your body um, needs to when it needs to, right? Are you able to fast? Like these tell me a lot just, just based on that. And then the piece that I was really missing that I eventually got a hold of was the trauma piece. So let us say loosely called trauma. This idea that we have these experiences, particularly when we're young, that we that we haven't processed fully, right? That we they, we weren't able to fully move through our system, right? And and partially, mostly because we're young beings that don't have a fully developed nervous system, so we we quite literally can't understand the world cognitively. Don't have this this understanding of what's happening, and so all we uh, experience when we're really little is is the feeling that we're feeling. And we, we can't even understand that. We just understand it on the feeling level. So when we are unable to process an emotion, process an experience, and that sort of leaves a residue, so to speak, a psychological residue, an emotional residue that, that we then use to adapt as we get older, right? So there's all these sort of like traumas and conditionings that, that may or may not be from something significant like, a, like abuse or, or something like that. They could be, um, you know, getting, mocked or laughed at in school repetitively, continuously, right? Um, misattuned by our parents. Like they didn't, they weren't able to, to accept us as a really sensitive, emotional being because they had a lot going on and they just had to control the environment, right? There's all kinds of these sort of traumas and conditionings that we experienced. And so that was a huge, huge piece that I missed for a long time. And, and when, even when I found it, I didn't really know how to work with it. I could recognize the trauma in people just based on, on their behaviors, on their uh, like the things that they would do, the things that they would think and say, and, and all these sort of feelings and beliefs that were coming through, even an email, you can, you can pick it up through an email just mm -hmm. based on the word choices and how people are speaking. Right. So, right. Um, so I was working with all these sort of things that didn't have anything really to do with functional medicine testing and all these amazing, cool things that we can do based on our sort of biological understanding. And so I thought, well, instead of just like teaching every person that came to me, sort of the lifestyle medicine piece first, and I, I was getting kind of burnt out seeing clients one-on-one -on -one, and I couldn't figure out a way to scale that without raising my prices, you know, ex exorbitantly right. and or hiring a bunch of coaches to work with me and under me and, and educating. And I didn't really want to go down that path. So I thought, well, I actually want to create a documented film series to share this education with hundreds of thousands of people and and set myself up in a more educational space you know so that i can sort of be in more of a media uh, educational space instead of one-on-one -on -one direct clinical work and, and that clinical work served me so well in terms of my understanding and why are, why are people struggling and where the trip-ups are and, and what we really need to focus on and so that's what we did you know we i decided um uh that I want to go out and I, I love traveling. So let's go to the blue zones, right? Like, like, and that was the thing, like, how can I deliver the message, you know, of circadian rhythm and environmental toxins and, and clearing the system and, and microbiota function and how that works with the immune system and how it communicates to mitochondria, how important mitochondria are in sort of this longevity aging process and, and really all disease states, metabolic dysfunctions, right? And, and, and trauma and, and raising healthy children and and how we look at Alzheimer's and cancer, in our, particularly as we get older. So these were all the things that I wanted to in, encapsulate in a, in a documentary film series, which is quite a lot, right? Trying to explain and teach these things from not only just a, a boring layman's perspective, but to really get into the science and explain the science really, really well. Right? Because then once you, what I found is that when I was working with clients, you know, they would, I would give them very basic instructions on what to do, right? Like in the morning, 
um, you know, you may have to start with an alarm at first, but hopefully you eventually get to waking up without an alarm, wake up and go outside and get light in your eyes in the morning. Like it's a very simple task. And, and, and usually the thought was, well, how is that going to help me overcome autoimmune conditions or food sensitivities or whatever it is they were struggling with this skin issue that I have, how the heck is that going to work? Right? So I'd have to explain this really complex science of how chronobiology works and circadian rhythm and how light goes into the eye and hits the optic chiasm and then speaks to the, the pituitary and, 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 and the hypothalamus and, and then communicate to the hormonal systems throughout your body and regulates every hormone. And, and there's all these clock genes inside every cell of the body that then dictate the epigenetic expression of your liver and your kidney and your bones. And every cell in your body is governed by this time clock, which is primarily guided by the light. So when you get that light in the morning, now your internal clock goes, oh, I know it's morning. Kick on all these functions, suppress all these other functions, thyroid, right? Like everything starts to shift based on this light cycle. And we know this through, through the, the observational data, through the clinical data, uh, all, call, all cause mortality, every disease that we know of will increase for those who are working shift work, right? Doctors are a huge one in this and nurses in, in, this, in this arena everything starts to derail and you can hold it together when you're young because you have tons of vitality, right? But as that vitality starts to weaken and we get into our older ages, then everything starts to fall apart because the circadian rhythm is the foundational principle by which our, our biology operates. So now all of a sudden this simple instruction of when you wake up, first thing you do is go outside and get light in your eyes to set your internal clock becomes this really profound thing. So I had to explain like the the complex science to some degree, and they go, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And then yeah. what would happen? People would lose weight. They would get better sleep. They would get they would, their cortisol would rise in the morning and they would feel really energized and they have a better day. Their mood would increase. They wouldn't uh, crave as, as many sugary foods and, and, and fatty and processed foods. Everything about their day was improved because they regularly got up and got sunlight in their eyes in the morning. Whether it was winter, whether it was summer, doesn't matter. Whether it was clouds in the sky, your biology, your eyes are sensitive enough to pick up that light, right? So this was what I was teaching my clients. And I thought, this is what I want to teach to as many people as I can, because that is where the difference starts to be made. And, and all the people that are doing the amazing, function, amazing functional medicine work, integrative work, even, even traditional uh, medical work, Everything's going to improve if, if their patients and their clients know how to live in a way that is conducive to healing. So now even the pharmaceutical drugs can work better. And we know this. Cancer drugs work better uh, when they're timed with circadian biology. So when these cancer drugs are given at the right time, things improve. And when they're given it at the wrong time, they don't improve as much, right? So Chinese medicine has known this for a long time. Ayurveda has known this for a long time. So these things are here. We've known about these. And now our pharmaceutical and our medical uh, systems are starting to adopt these things, which is really exciting, right? So, so these are the things I wanted to, to teach that. And so we, 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 we did that through the lens of the longest living people. And I thought, you know, somebody that's 98 and relatively healthy or 104, I guarantee you they, they're going to do all these things, right? Like there's a fundamental way to live that is, that, that will, 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 precipitate health, that will induce health because that is our natural state, right? We just got to get rid of the blocking factors and align with our natural uh, status and what our body wants to do and what it's been conditioned to for thousands of years, then things will be in harmony. Yeah. Okay. So you go out on this project and you are going to travel to these blue zones and find these 70, 80, 90, 100 year old people. 
how, like, how do you find them though? Like how, like how, <laughs> I mean, you really interviewed some great people for the project, but like, <laughs> where do you find these people? You just like walk down the street and look for the old people. Like, yeah, there's not like a directory, you know? Um, although I wish there kind of was, but that was actually the fun part and very, uh, disconcerting at the same time. Right. Because, um, you know, we'd have to travel. And, and the reason we went to the Blue Zones was not to investigate the Blue Zone work further. And for those who aren't familiar with the Blue Zones, it's these regions that have been identified, um, statistically identified by Michelle Poulon and, and Dan Butner and, and National Geographic. They found these places that have an inordinate amount of, of centenarians, people that made it to 100, right? So it's, it's statistically significant. And they identified these regions in order to sort of say, what's different about them? What, what's going on here in these regions, right? And, and they did that work and it was great and, and uh, no knock on it. I, I do think that we could, what we tried to do is go further into the scientific reasoning uh, about not just the commonalities of these places, right? And, and they were identified as Icaria, Greece, Sardinia, which is uh, an island off of Italy, Okinawa, and then uh, the Guanacaste sort of region uh, of, of Costa Rica. And so we weren't really concerned with like, what are they all doing the same? And, you know, I kind of knew the fundamental reasons. It's interesting, the similarities and the differences like that, that is interesting to look at um, because it explains something deeper in my opinion. When they can all eat different foods, what does that tell you? It tells you that it's not really the food. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, there's no one specific food for a person, right? So we'll, we can get into that a little bit more, but essentially that's the blue zones. And I, we wanted to go to those places just because that's where we figured we could find 100 year olds that were exhibiting a lot of the same behavioral patterns um, that explained the fundamental essence of, of how our biology functions. And so, um, yeah, we went to Costa Rica first and um, I speak a little Spanish, not enough to really make any headway, um, but, but we, we would always have to find a fixer, right? What we call the fixer, somebody in the area that spoke English and, and, and the local language that could at least get us going, right? And, and, and basically we knocked on doors, right? We went into these small rural villages and the cool part about that is everybody knows each other, right? So you can ask one person at a coffee shop to, hey, we're doing this film project. We're looking for these people that are in their, you know, 80s, 90s, 100s. Do you know anybody? They say, oh, no, I don't know. But, you know, Lucia down on, you know, take eight blocks that way and bang, they go this way toward the ocean one block and then you'll find Lucia. Okay, right? So there's no like addresses in these places. <laughs> Google <Right>? map. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, so we just go find Lucia and knock on her door and say, hey, here we are. We're doing this thing. We'd love to interview you. So um, the cool part was because of the era that they grew up in and the societal structure and the sort of communal i mean we just talked before the podcast you're in you're in nebraska right so it's more small town feel probably where you're where you're at than where i am in in, in southern california and so there's this there's a communal feel there's a connectivity um in these sort of rural regions that allows us to do this right so so that's that's what we did and and um luckily we found some amazing people that way but Every time, you know, I mean, Okinawa was a tough one to be able to find somebody that spoke English and, and Japanese or sometimes even old Okinawan, which is a different language, um, to be able to connect us with these people and then translate, you know, the things like it wasn't it wasn't an easy task for, for a small budget film. Um, we weren't a major production company. And so it was just yeah. two guys going around and seeing if we can capture this stuff. And, and we got some amazing, amazing footage. And we 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 learned so much about. Um, how they lived, right? Because what was really interesting about that was we can look at what they're doing now and that's great. But to me, it was like somebody is 95 years old. I want to know what they were doing when they were 15, mm -hmm. when they were yeah. six, right? Like you've got, you've got kids. That is where all the foundations are laid down to who they become. 
And of course we can adapt and, and we can change and we, we, we can progress and we can heal things and process things from our youth. And, and that's great. But so much of who we are is, is really laid down between essentially preconception, right? What happens with our parents and grandparents, that's a lot of who we are as well as up until seven, eight, 10, something like that, right? Like, so, so I wanted to know what life was like for them back then. And when you, when you ask those questions, things get revealed that, that are quite, quite amazing that lead to a different understanding of, of what it means to be old or to, to live a long time, particularly in those regions. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about diet. Cause you kind of alluded to the fact that you went lots of places and they don't all eat the same way or eat the same things. Because I feel like in the U S like you get on social media and people are like vegan plant-based or they're carnivore or they're Mediterranean, or like, they've got these, you know, like a word that describes their diet. And then standard American diet, right? Like, what does that mean? So obviously you're not going into these places, you know, like what kind of diet do you eat? Um, so talk to me about like what you learned about their nutrition and, and diet from maybe what they did when they were younger to like, what they did as they were older. Cause you know, certainly 90 years is a long time and there were probably were a lot of changes within their community and things. Um, so tell us kind of what you learned about that. Yeah. Well, what's, what's interesting about that is you're hitting on something I think is a fundamental thing that we, we kind of gloss over in the West, which is that in all likelihood diet should change for each individual throughout their life. Even if, if the structure of the society is the same, right? You don't feed the same foods to a two-year-old that you do to your 10-year-old right? That can change. And same thing when we get into our 20s and 30s, we probably should be eating a different diet than when we're 92, right? Digestion tends to be weaker when we're in our 90s than it is when we're in our, in our adolescence, right? So, so that means that we actually have the ability to process and digest foods differently. So that, that indicates that we probably should be listening to our bodies and saying, okay. And what we found was that that was the case. Most people um, that we interviewed in their 80s and 90s, they would most of them ate meat at some point in their life. And when they got older, a lot of them tended to stray away from meat a little bit. Now, this might fly in the face of some of the things that we talk about in the West about maintaining muscle mass and how important you know amino acids are and all these things. But what they realized was that's all great, but if you can't digest it, then what are we talking about? Right? If you don't have the hydrochloric acid production, the digestive enzymes, and, and the ability for, for the, you to break down those, those proteins, um, then maybe we should be looking at something different because that's all, all that's going to cause is, is inflammation. And that's what we see, right? We see that in the West with things like gluten. Gluten is simply just a protein that we're unable to break down very well, right? If somebody can break it down into the amino acids, amino acids don't cause any inflammation, no problem in the system, right? Um, and so this is what we, what we find. And, and it's interesting to note that, that they would feed, oftentimes children would eat more fruits, more heavily based on fruits because it's super easy to digest. Children's uh, digestive systems aren't as strong, like young children, right? And then when we get into our, our early teens and adolescence and, and adulthood, our digestion's great, right? And then it, it starts to weaken again. And then you'd see a little bit more fruits and, and easy vegetables, vegetables that you would cook, right? And, and so this is what we found in those diets. Now, the framework of the diets de were dependent on the culture and the context and the environment, right? So in Sardinia, they ate tons of bread. They ate tons of bread all year round, nothing but bread. It was fundamental. It was a staple. Every person we talked to said that, like, no, bread, it's important. We need it, right? And there's a religious bent there. So a lot of it was informed based on, on that. Um, but their bread was different, right? And, the, the, and so 
everything about the way that they grew the grains. They didn't grow the, the wheats that we grow here. They grew a totally different species of, of, of grain. And they milled it in the house with a donkey, like going around in circles, right? And then they baked it fresh and they did their things the way they did them, right? So that's a totally different food than what, what I would go and buy a hamburger And me buying a, a loaf of bread at the totally. grocery store here. Right, or a hot dog bun or whatever, right? So, so that's a different animal, right? And, and not only that, what's interesting about these regions that, that I think people forget to consider is that if you, were, if you live in Sardinia today and you're one of those, these elders, you came from a long lineage of people who did the same things and ate the same foods over and over and over again for years and years and years. So they were, their, their bodies were, they were adapted to these cultural foods very, very well, right? So their, their microbiome, their uh, mitochondria, their digestive capacity all favored those types of foods that they've been eating for thousands of years. So, so this cultural conditioning, even at, to the level of digestion, is set in, right? So, so that's an interesting thing to consider as well. In, in uh, most places, they eat a lot of beans, right? So in, in um, Costa Rica, tons of beans, rice, corn, as you would expect, that was, that was a staple, right? Um, tomatoes were big in, in Icaria, in, in Sardinia, right? So the bottom line is, is that in every, of these, every one of these cultures, we could find offensive food types <laughs> that, we, that we classify as harmful in the West, right? They ate cheeses, they ate, so they ate dairy, they ate meat, they ate um, fruits of all kinds, right? We're told that fruits, too much fruit is, is high glycemic and don't do that. We're told that, you know, these vegetables, um, you know, they contain plant toxins, perhaps, you know, um, all kinds of things that we, we don't Phytic want to Phytic acid eat. and oxalates exactly. and lectins. It, it, exactly. Right. And then the lectins, right? That's a big one too these days. Uh, Dr. Gundry, shout out to, the, to making that a big thing, right? And, and, and the truth is none of these are wrong, right? They're just partial truths. They're truths in a given context. And that's the important thing, right? If you're living in Costa Rica, where it's hot, most of the year, you have a wet season and a dry season. Um, and fruit is growing all year round, right? The fruit changes. So there's seasonal fruits that grow at different times of the year. When they're working hard, and you're working outside all day long. Yeah, carbohydrates and fruits, not going to be a big problem for blood glucose levels for um, you know, maintaining uh, glycemic control, insulin levels, metabolic function, because you're literally working your tail off all day long, mm -hmm. right? And then they don't eat after the sun goes down, most of them, right? So they, it's the way they eat, it's when they eat, it's how much they ate. And they ate in a way that was in balance, right? For this is the problem. And, and, and this is one of the other things that we wanted to address in our, in our film series was that we wanted to separate and make distinctions between the human longevity project or in, in how they lived in the, in the blue zones and how we live here, right? They didn't, we are faced with different challenges than they are faced with. And they were faced with different challenges than we're faced with. We have, we live in the life of luxury. You know, we have comfort to no end. We don't have to struggle. Like I don't want to go back to a life where no refrigeration exists. There, there's no cars, no electricity. Like that doesn't sound like fun to me. I mean, I go camping and that's awesome, but then I want to come home and I want to sleep in my bed and I want to turn on lights and get something out of, out of the fridge. And I want to do Zoom calls, right? Like this is an interesting dynamic. And for them, the, the thing that they never had to struggle with was walking into a grocery store and saying no to this processed food and no to that processed food and no to that yummy ice cream there and no to that piece of pizza and no to the happy hours. 
although they had a lot of happy hours. They did their own thing, their own way. Um, but, but you know what I mean? Like we have to actually say no to a lot of things to try to live, uh, to eat a diet that is whole, that is, uh, you know, perhaps local, seasonal, organic, right? Like we have to do, we have to work so hard to get an organic apple, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't have to work hard. That's just what was there everywhere right. all the time, right? right? So, and, and, and they ate food seasonally. So we're faced with very, very different challenges. Um, and it's all contextual how we, we, we think about diet. And one of the things that, that, that they, they ate in balance because they had to grow their own food in large part, right? Sure, they did some hunting, and, but again, that was, that was respective of season and, and where the animals were and what, what was available. And then if you, if you, let's say you hunted an animal, what are you gonna do with it? Because you don't have refrigeration. So you have to find a way to either eat it or preserve it in a, in a fashion that makes sense for your region. Right. So, so they, ate, if they, and if they overate, that just means they got to work, plant more in the, in the gardens and take more of their field. And it's going to take more time and more energy. And that doesn't make sense. Right. So you, you eat in a way that's going to be totally in balance in harmony with your environment. And truth be told, many of them were, had to, had suffered from, you know, these sort of starvation like periods, right. These actual, and I'm not talking about like this idea of intermittent fasting and how glorious this is that we can fast. Like they didn't have food for like months, you know, and they were rationed foods from the government sometimes and, and they struggled. Um, crop might've just completely been decimated because of the seasonal, you know, either lack of rain or too much rain or whatever it might be. So they were forced to, to go through very difficult times. And of course this made them more sort of anti-fragile, uh, right? This makes them more resilient. Um, mm -hmm. And there's some, we know the benefits of some of this stuff, but they struggled and they, and they had to uh, really work to, to, to live healthy, um, but it was done in a diff, diff, very different way. So, so it really comes down to not really what they ate. Because yes, in our modern context, you know, I would not advise eating wheat and tons of bread, and I would not even advise eating tons of foods with that are rich in lectins. I would advise cooking them and finding ways to reduce the lectin content, the phytic acid, as you mentioned. Right? There's all these things that are that we actually are finding causing us problems, and 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 the cultural cuisines and the way they cooked foods in some of these regions naturally reduced some of those plant toxins that, that can be a little aggressive. Um, but, but ultimately it's not the food, it's how it's prepared. It's how much you're eating. Are you digesting? You know, are you chewing thoroughly, right? Like this is something we mm, overlook yeah. in, our, in our culture massively. Instead, we just pop enzymes and maybe some hydrochloric acid and we think, oh, that's good and, and probiotics. When, when in reality, if you chewed your food thoroughly, you ate only when you're really actually hungry, like really hungry, now your digestive capacity is through the roof, right? So, mm -hmm. so these are some of the basic things, the timing of when you ate, how much you ate, these are the real key factors. And then of course, listening to your body and saying, okay, this doesn't really agree with me. And I, I tend to do well on a little bit more carbohydrate rich diet because I exercise a lot and I have a very demanding schedule and because of my constitution, my genetics. And then somebody else might find that higher fat or higher protein, whatever the case is, that's where we're all unique and individuated. And depending on where we're at in our life, are we running marathons or are we you know, sitting on a, on a chair 10 hours a day doing work, right? These are all variations based on context. And that's what's important. Yeah. I think you did a nice job of kind of highlighting that depending on where you live in the world, you know, our modern luxuries, everything comes with a payoff, you know, like when we had industrialized agriculture and we had the ability to grow fields and fields and fields of grains and all these things, like that's how kind of like our world evolved. I had the opportunity um, this year to go down to Santiago, Chile to speak. And it was very interesting for me 
um, to go down there. And, you know, I come into Santiago and there's a Starbucks and a Wendy's and a, like all the same modern, <laughs> uh, you know, things that we have here in the U S like right there in Santiago, Chile too. And, you know, the doctors there were telling me that they have some of the same, I mean, you can Uber, it, there was a, it was amazing to me, like Uber eats down there. There's like all these, it was mostly men, all these guys on bikes and they have these like cooler backpacks on. And I mean, there's like hundreds of them. They're just like zooming by like on the street all the time. And, you know, people are just, it's just quicker to like have them run to the convenience store and get you stuff and bring you stuff. Um, And so it's very interesting for me to hear you kind of say that, you know, when you go into these villages where they have to grow and they have, they have to be more physically active, they have to walk to get their food and to get their water and all those things. Um, so, so well, diet well, one real, thing real, real yeah. quick. I, I want to hit on that. Cause you, you hit on something really, really important. And I actually, I'm not sure we'll ever see a, a new quote unquote blue zone again. And I know Michelle Poulon, he's the demographer who actually identified the first blue zone. At least that's his story. Um, and he circled it and said, okay, this is the blue zone. Cause he was able to go to the region and identify the birth certificates and, and, and truly verify. Well, what we're seeing now, and we saw this in Okinawa is they have something called hamburger syndrome they, That's their term. And because of the McDonald's and the Starbucks and all this sort of westernized living is coming into that that world, and all of a sudden people are getting obese. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's it's they're having the same problems. And I would argue that they're actually um, the rates of increase are higher than what we're seeing in the West because they lived this sort of natural life in in, in for so long. Now they're just automatically so quickly being introduced this sort of hyper novelty of the diet. And again, it's hard to resist, like straight up this stuff is on some level, it's really tasty, right? Like they have food engineers and scientists doing, doing their stuff to make it tasty and, and appetizing, right? On another level, it's quite gross, but like, there's a, there's a natural, it's hitting our natural appetites, right? The salt and the sweet and the fat, and it's just like in the crunch, like there's this perfect combination of things and they're working so hard to, to attract that. And so when this comes into their environment and they're like, hey, this is great. we got Kentucky Fried Chicken. This is awesome, right? And it's causing all kinds of problems. So I actually, and we're seeing this over and over again, this westernization of even these sort of rural areas. And the other part to that is because we are now this global society of sharing information and, and the ability to travel, a lot of the, the kids that are, that are growing up in the, in the mountainous regions of Sardinia are now leaving to Cagliari, which is the, the, the big city in Sardinia, which there's, it's not a longevity zone at all, yeah. right? So now you've got these people leaving these regions, which is the exact opposite thing of what you really need to create a, a homogenous you know, society that is very healthy over the long term. So we're starting to mix it all up now. And there's so much Westernization that I actually don't think we're going to see these pockets of, of healthy people unless it's something like, like places that have been ostracized, like Cuba, right? And that was actually one of the places Michelle was looking. It's like, hey, I'll look there because it hasn't been Westernized. The, the president, even though it's poor and it's, there's a lot of problems with it, the way they're living is in many, that, many regions of that place is still uh, coming from that older traditions. And so there's other places like Crete and, and you know, Russia and there's, there's, there's places. But but I'm just not convinced that we're actually going to find one again because of this sort of movement and, and these ideas that are spreading. 
Maybe we should make one. Let's get some land. So there's there's <laughs> somebody that's done this. There. Yeah, where, Guernsey. Where? <laughs> yeah, in Guernsey. There's an island in um, off the UK, a um, place called Guernsey. It's kind of between France and, and the UK, and it's got both French and English influence. And it's it's a small, small island where so it's small enough to where they could actually all say, yeah, let's inculcate sort of health and longevity. And they and so I think they're still trying to accomplish that. But again, you know, to 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 be a centenarian takes a hundred years, right? Like this stuff you can't change overnight. And, and yeah. like I said, for so long, the things that really drove these people to be healthy in their eighties, nineties, one hundreds is the, the 70 years before that. And primarily the first 10 years of life. And even beyond that, the, the generational stuff, like that is so critical. And we have science now that has shown exactly what I'm talking about in this sort of generational transfer of, of trauma and, and nervous system sort of, let's say, uh, hypervigilance. Yeah. Okay. So obviously diet is one thing, you know, and you touched on earlier, kind of this biopsychosocial, obviously there's other things that contribute to the fact that they live to be a hundred years, you know, sleep, getting more sunlight, like all of these things. Um, but you were saying like, you learn so much as a practitioner and I do the same thing when I'm sitting talking to a patient, like I'm thinking about like, the oxidative stress of what they're doing and their mitochondria. And like, I'm thinking of all these things, right. But like when you Such go into <laughs> Sardinia, like you're not like, Hey, what are you doing to help your mitochondria? <laughs> I was tempted by the way to like do testing, but I thought, no, it's just going to go down rabbit holes that don't really matter. <laughs> so like what other things besides eating a, you know, uh, culturally appropriate, geographically appropriate diet like what other things did you pick out of there that you made the connection to like mitochondria and microbiome and longevity yeah and i want to connect those two dots right um, because I, I, you probably know this but many listeners don't that that you know we have microbes of course in our gut that's a, that's a, we've known this for a while it's a big area of study and it's been talked about we have also microbes everywhere in our body right on our skin in our eyes in our liver they're everywhere right so they are fundamental um, aspect of who we are, right? And and we in fact have more microbe genes um, than we do human genes, right? So there's an argument of like, are you actually more microbe or are you human? What is it to be a human, right? And then of course, so they have their own genetics, right? So they have their own sort of, let's say, agenda based on the symbiotic relationship between this organism that they're inhabiting, right? That they're working in. And, and, and so they have needs, right? And then we have uh, mitochondria, which many people aren't aware that they have their own genes, right? And there's debate on how we sort of have those within ourselves, but these mitochondria are thought of as the power plant or the energy center, but they do so much more. They produce hormones, right? They, they, they take out the waste, right? They, they communicate with all kinds of things going on at the cellular level. Um, so they are really, really important organelles and they have their own circular DNA. So now we have microbe DNA, we have uh, mitochondria DNA, and then we have human DNA. And so we have three genetic, and I say classifications of, of genetics, right? So uh, even of the microbes, there's all kinds of different DNA there. So now you have the mitochondria and that, and that primarily comes from mother, right? So the, the, the mitochondrial DNA is passed down through the, the female lineage. So now we have, again, these three genetic components that are all somehow communicating to create health and balance in a, in a real time way, right? Like we're so amazed by AI and machine learning now, but like this is like, the, the human body blows it out of water. I mean, like billions and billions and billions and billions of interactions constantly like every second, right? To keep things humming and communicating. So those communication 
mechanisms are really important. So to get fixated on human DNA and telomeres and, and the, the genetics and what gets expressed in methylation patterns and deacetylation patterns and all these things, that's all well and good. But the question is, and people know that if they've worked with cancer, what are the mitochondria doing, right? Like what's going on at that level? Because that's communicating to DNA what to turn on and what to turn off and how to express. So we need to know what the mitochondria are doing. And same thing, mitochondria are receiving the signals from whatever the, the genetics are expressing. And then same thing with the, with the microbes. They're, they're sending out signals communicating to mitochondria. So they're these secondary metabolites. When you eat a food or when you don't eat a food, their natural behavior is communicating via reactive oxygen species, hydrogen sulfide. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that, that are going on at that level. So when you eat a blueberry, sure, you get those, those, um, those phytochemicals, the, the polyphenols from the blueberry, but it's your microbes that digest the components of the sugar and the, and the colors and all the, the chemicals of that blueberry. And then they spit out secondary metabolites, right? And those metabolites then can, you know, improve the gut. They can communicate to the cell on how much energy is inputting. So there's a, a three-way communication going on at that level. And so that becomes a, a huge factor in this, in this whole equation of, am I healthy? Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, okay. So when you are working as a practitioner, cause you work with people, you still work with people since the project. I do. Launched. Yeah. A little bit differently. Yeah. I'm mostly on like trauma and, and things like that, but yes, I'm still very much in sort of chronic disease states as well. Okay. So for somebody listening, obviously we have talked about how difficult it is in the U S with our modern technologies and things like that. It's, it's really hard to find like good food and like do all the right things because of the way that our world's set up. So I guess give people like your top three tips. If they tomorrow are like, I want to start working on my longevity, like what are the three things to focus on? Yeah. And to tie in kind of your last question, which I never actually answered. So sorry about that. Um, <laughs> the, really the way to think about us is that we are open energetic systems. Right? which means that everything we think, feel, do, uh, everything that's impacting us, light and sound, and again, uh, beliefs and, and, and all the things, these are all impacting how our, our, our genes get expressed, the mitochondrial genes, the, the uh, human genes, and, and the microbe genes. Right? And that's the, that's the mechanism, right? And our nervous system is kind of the interface between the unseen world and the seen world, right? And this is what, you know, the shamans have understood for a long time. Um, and there's an uh, a, a old phrase, I believe comes from Ayurveda that says, we don't even experience the world as it is. We only experience our own nervous system, right? So, and that's really, really a deep concept to, to meditate on and to sit with because it, it, it gets to the core of some of these things that we, that we all differ on, right? Like there was that um, sound that sounded like some people thought it said Yanni and some people thought it said Laurel. I don't know if you've seen that, but mm. it's this combination of sounds and based on certain things, you might hear Yanni and then you might hear Laurel uh, or somebody else might hear Laurel and they're convinced says no it says laurel and the same thing with the colors right we had that dress that was yeah. a, a big thing right and and there's and the taste of cilantro some people i think say it tastes like soap i have the gene i have the gene you do okay <laughs> the and soap gene so, so it tastes like soap that's can't so weird to can't me. stand it it ruins the whole dish so so this is the, this is the core of what i'm getting what i'm getting at here is what's the truth right the truth for you is that it, it does taste like soap no question we all we know that that people feel pain differently so some people feel the same amount of pressure and it really hurts. And some people, yeah, it's not, it doesn't really hurt that much. Totally. I believe that because I watch childbirth all day and I'll see a woman who I'm like, she's either really stoic exactly. or 
her labor does not feel like this woman over here who's like dropping F-bombs and like ready to like catapult into another galaxy. And in Ayurveda, they talk about this based on your constitution. um, If you're more Vata type, which is kind of thin and and, um, cold and, and, and yeah, there's a lot of other characteristics, but they feel pain more than if you're a Kapha type, which is a little bit more robust, right? A little more husky, thicker boned, like, and so, we feel different. Everything is different about us. So, so with that, we have a unique constitution, right? So we all need to be doing different things. And this is why when we're all looking for gurus out there and this person's saying one thing and that person's saying another thing and he's saying them over there and no, 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 do this. They're all kind of right. It just depends on the context, right? So this is the thing where I hope we can get to a point where we stop arguing about which diet and which exercise and which way to do things is the quote unquote best way, because it all is so contextual for each individual, mm-hmm. right? Exercise is so, so different for everybody, right? And diet and everything we do. So they're all partially right. So we all experience a different reality. And, and so that means that all these energetic inputs that we're, that we're taking in on a regular basis, and right now probably our biggest issue is stimuli. We are overstimulated. We do not get into rest, right? And this is a key part of resilience and building a strong system is you wanna operate at the extremes. You wanna operate in rest and darkness and quiet, right? And then you wanna work out and do the things that are intense, right? So you wanna be in the intense mode. You wanna be in the hot, you wanna be in the cold, right? You wanna be in darkness, you wanna be in the light. And I'm not talking, and the problem we have now is that we're, we're kind of in this middle zone. We stay in this sort of 68 degree Fahrenheit room and we have these indoor lights, but they're not really that powerful. They're missing some of the spectrum that comes from the sun, right? Particularly UV and infrared, since those are not energy efficient and we don't want those. So we, you know, so we're, we're missing all these components. We're in this no man's land so often. We work out, but maybe it's for half an hour or we go for a walk or we just do something kind of, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, right? And so we're not truly resting and we're not truly engaged, right? Full engaged. So, so that's where you want to live. You want to live at the extremes. And then what you do with all that is, is critical, right? Like what's really important for you. So for some people, it's going to be exercise is the foundational thing that they really need to, to work on, that they really need to inculcate in their, in their life. And, and it can be walking and yoga and Tai Chi, and it can be all kinds of movement patterns, the primal movements, it can be high intensity interval training, right? Like whatever it is for them, that's going to be the biggest lever. And exercise is massive. When I was in, in working with people one-on-one, I would see people that would exercise regularly and have the worst habits everywhere else. And then I'd see other people that would have pretty darn good habits and they would barely work out. And the labs that would come back almost always favored the people who worked out regularly. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. And it's because it's it's moving, uh, you know, lymph and blood through the body, right? It's exchanging the fluids. It's getting rid of the waste. And this waste accumulation in the body is is the most fundamental issue. In Ayurveda, they call it ama. Right? It's this idea that things build up in the system and they create create destabilization at the cellular level, at the system level loss of cellular intelligence, loss of communication, right? and things start to break down over time. So we need to move that waste out of the system. So what does that? Fasting, exercise, really good sleep, right? Like emotionally uh, processing things and being in good relation with, with God, with people, with yourself, with the earth, with animals, with the environment, everything, right? Mm-hmm. So, so these are all the mechanisms, right? And so for one person, exercise is going to be the biggest lever and that's what they need to work on. For somebody else, it might be circadian rhythm. That's a huge one, right? Really dialing in circadian rhythm, getting up in the morning, getting light in the eyes, 
um, getting hopefully as much light on the body and in the eyes uh, throughout the day as you can without burning. And then at night, slowing things down and, and really, really getting into this rest mode. And when you do that over the course of two or three weeks, your body starts getting entrained in, in into this amazing pattern of physiology. And I've seen people that when they do that, they lose weight, their eyesight improves, their inflammation goes down, everything starts to improve. Food sensitivities go away, autoimmunity starts to improve, everything starts to improve just because circadian rhythm was starting to get optimized, right? And for other people, I would say, these are kind of the big ones I'm hitting, the, the relational piece, right? This trauma piece, right? That I'm loosely calling it trauma, but it's the conditioning, it's the beliefs, it's the mental attitude that we're walking throughout the day. So many of us had rough childhoods and we may not even have realized it because we've adapted, because we're so resilient. Humans are amazingly resilient. We become something we need to be to survive. And that might mm -hmm. be the perfectionist. That might be the one who succeeds. That might be the engineer um, that goes and does these things for reasons he doesn't even know why, right? It could be somebody who's afraid to take chances, whatever the things, but we, come, we become these people, may have personality patterns that are reflected. Um, we could be defensive. We could be disconnected. You, you've met people that are just, it's hard to connect with. No matter how hard they're trying, you feel like there's just not something here. I can't really... Yeah get in there. Like there's a heart wall there, right? And that's, that's not their fault. That's a defensive pattern because they were wounded at, at early points in childhood and, and perhaps even before that, that's created these adaptive patterns. So that would be their biggest sort of lever is to focus on this internal work, processing this trauma, these, these experiences that haven't fully been digested. And again, leaning on Ayurveda, because I love that, that modality so much. We, they even talk about this as, as a digestive thing that we need to process. Like we digest emotions, we digest experiences. And if we don't have good digestion, then those things that are left undigested, they can create physical ailments, mental ailments, mm -hmm. right? The depressions, the anxieties, the knee pains, all this stuff can come from undigested emotion or experience. And so, you know, doing things like EMDR, just if, if people are, are, you know, guided this way toward the plant medicines like ayahuasca and some of these other things, um, you know, uh, there's adult attachment repair model, which will, uh, will repair attachment systems. So getting into sort of more of the psychology side of things, we have a detachment system that we can either feel secure in our attachment that usually comes from our caregivers, or we can be anxious, like, and that came from the, the, the caregiver not really being there, or when we can't trust that the caregiver is going to be there or not going to be there. So we have this really anxious, and you see this typically portrayed in romantic comedies where the female is typically the, the person that exhibits this. As soon as the person gets close and they have the relationships going well, she just like clings because she's like, don't go, you know, like, and the, mm -hmm. and the male lead is typically like, oh, they uh, have the avoidant pattern. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then the avoidant pattern, like, oh my God, this is getting too close and it's making me nervous. This isn't safe to feel connected. So push away. Right. That's the avoidant pattern. And again, that's represented in, in the rom coms that way. But most of us carry some, one of these or even both of these patterns on the attachment system. And so even when we're in relationship, it's never really feeling secure. And when we talk about in the blue zones work and some of the longevity work, this idea of community comes up a lot, like oh, community is so important and there's longevity studies about community and all that. And I say, yeah, kind of, but it's really, the, it's really the things about community that are important, the connection that community provides. So if a community doesn't provide connection, then the community is not really that great. It's the connection that we need. It's the safety that we need to feel. So when we feel those things, that's important. But if we have an attachment system disruption that needs to be repaired, 
well, then we're not going to feel that connection and safety in relationship to others or to group or to ourselves or to God or whatever the case is, right? So it's really, these are really, really deep and important things to focus on. And the reason, shortly, real quickly here, the reason it's so important to focus on these things is because they're impacting the nervous system function and the genetic expression that's going on all the time. So somebody might feel like, oh, I'm at rest. I'm in parasympathetic. No, no, that's just parasympathetic for them. Their system's still jacked up, pretty vigilant because the environment doesn't really feel safe. And then when they process some of these experiences and emotions, they have a new baseline where their nervous system can actually get a little bit more rest at baseline. So these are the things that start to show up when you work with people enough and these sort of syndromes and, and um, these things that, that kind of uh, go unchecked, you know, um, they're, they're happening in the background. And another one I'll quickly mention is DNRS, Dynamic Neural Retraining System, I believe it is. Um, unbelievably powerful to, to rewire the brain, to, to, to dip into this sort of idea of neuroplasticity and create new neural patterns, new behaviors, new thoughts, and new beliefs. And when you do that on a subconscious level so that you're operating from a different place, then the world changes around you everything starts to change and it changes internally as well. And that's really what gets people um, out of trouble in sort of the chronic disease sense and also what's going to extend life and so that we remain healthier as we age. Amazing. Okay. Tell people, um, cause I think you learned so much. Like I try to walk the walk as a practitioner, right? I could sit here and spout off all these, you know, amazing things that people should do. Tell us in Jason's 24 hours of every day that he gets, like, mm. what are your non-negotiables when it comes to your lifestyle and, and how it plays out with longevity? Mm. What are the things you do every day? I, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a weird answer here, but um, because my pattern in the past has been so rigid, I've actually loosened my rigidity. So mm, one of my non-negotiables is to actually be flexible. So even though I would sort of put sleep in this category, it's like a non-negotiable. There's times where I do, I get, I stay up late and I get crappy sleep because I feel like it's worth it to, for me to do whatever I need to do. Even though I know how critical sleep is. And I would say that's probably the number one thing is getting really good quality sleep between the, the right hours, which is about 10 PM to 6 AM, give or take, yeah. depending on your genetics, it can vary, but that's a big one. I would say sleep, um, I think, but, but again, for me, it's actually being flexible because that hyper rigidity actually creates again, a nervous system that's hyper vigilant about, Oh, I got to mm -hmm. do this and I got to do that. And I got to, and that can actually drive more stress internally. Right? So me just loosening the reins a little bit has been a really big game changer for me to say, you know what? I don't need to take everything so serious. I can yeah. relax about some of this stuff, right? And, and I can't and let go of this perfectionism. Um, yeah. That's a big one. I would say exercise is another big one. Um, that's a non-negotiable. Um, moving as much as I can. And there's times where I don't get as much movement, but, um, but mo and moving in a way that's actually going to serve me. So for me, like you might be able to tell, like I've weights and exercise and building muscle has been a big part of my past. And it was a big part of the football that I played and the baseball that I played. But now, you know, I'm actually moving in a way that is Functional. So I'm actually bringing in um, more movements that are actually going to help me extend my my longevity of the body itself, right? I want more flow in the body. So bringing in movements that maybe aren't fun, or that you don't necessarily like at first, but you need, I think that can be a critical. And the other the other side of that is actually moving in a way that's fun too. So not everything's work, right? So playing, bringing in more play when it comes to movement, I think is a really big factor. And if you've got kids, that's a really, really easy thing to do or, or a dog or something like that. But 
Um, that's a really important thing. And then I think the third one would be um, constantly working on myself. And like I said, processing these, these wounds, these traumas, these conditionings, always looking at my belief system. Where did that come from? Why is it here? What can I do to change that? Right. And constantly, consciously, consciously doing the work um, day to day, but doing the subconscious work as well and using some, a lot of these therapies um, in sort of the trauma world. And again, even if you don't think you have trauma, like this is a big one. And as we start to process these things, what I've noticed is life just gets easier. Right? Money shows up differently. Like finances aren't as, aren't as big of a struggle. Relationships show up differently. I get more support now without even having to try. Like it just starts to come. Right? Like things just work out. Right? And when things don't work out, I'm not as stressed. So I don't spike as much into these patterns um, that I would would have otherwise when I was younger. And so to me, this is a really really key factor of just making an easy life. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. I love that. Um, because I think sometimes people get hyper-focused on like, oh, it's just about perfecting my diet or it's just about this. It's just about, these are like all little puzzle pieces that all make a huge difference. And sometimes you have to figure out where, you know, where to start. Okay. So Jason, I end all these podcasts with the semen analysis and something I've been very interested in, in the last number of years is, you know, low carbon ketogenic diets. Cause we deal with 88% of patients having insulin resistance or some kind of metabolic disease. It's a huge problem in the U S and of course, we're always looking for an answer. So I pulled this paper from 2018 called ketone bodies mimic the lifespan extending properties of caloric restriction. Now, um, just a, a little side note on this. The authors of this paper do have a little bias and invested interest because they, uh, Dr. Richard Beach and Karen Clark and, and Patrick Bradshaw and some of these people, um, work in that space. They've been invented ketone esters and they, they have products available for sale. So, um, but it brings up something that I would love to get Jason's perspective on too, since he has spent his <laughs> life studying this longevity project. So the extension of lifespan by calorie restriction has been studied across lots of different species like yeast. Um, there's a, uh, something called C elegans, which is basically like a worm, um, all the way to primates. And there's never been a generally accepted theory to explain the observations, but we know that basically caloric restriction extends lifespan. And they are proposing that the benefits of caloric restriction can be duplicated by ketosis. And it's been shown that this lifespan extension, um, is from decreased signaling in the insulin, insulin, like growth factor receptor pathways. And basically it causes a bunch of genes to change transcriptions in the genes, different enzymes to be produced. And it's an effective method for combating free radical damage. Um, because when you metabolize ketone bodies, um, there is uh, physiologic differences compared to oxidation of glucose. And so they also propose, of course, that this dietary ketone ester, like something you can drink instead of doing a ketogenic diet, something called an exogenous ketone could help through these same pathways because beta hydroxybutyrate, um, change, I don't want to talk in like huge medical terms, but there's, um, they work as a cellular signaling molecule. So it's yep. not just like, oh, they're an energy. Like they, they literally have, um, epigenetic changes and changes within cells. And, and so they're basically saying that they think that ketones are, are a way to extend like extend lifespan in humans, Jason, through all of your work that you have done, like, what are your thoughts about? Cause obviously fasting has been a hot thing, which is another way to get into ketosis. Like, what do you think about ketones and ketosis and longevity? You know, to be honest, I think a lot of this is, forgive my, my term here, but it's mental masturbation, so, <laughs> you know, and I sort of say that lovingly, you know, there's nothing wrong with masturbation, I guess. Um, it, you know, 
I take ketones. So I take ketone esters. That's something I, I take uh, every now and again, um, because I do believe in some of the signaling pathways that it induces. Um, trying to mimic things with artificial compounds, I think is a fool's errand. So it can, so in other words, when we fast or when we do a calorie restricted diet for any amount of time, it's not just these XYZ pathways, right? We tend to look at that because that's all we can do in science. We can, we only can look at what we can look at. We can't look mm -hmm. at the whole thing, right? And so what's happening when you, when you do a sort of fasting mimicking or fasted or some sort of caloric restriction, there's a million things happening. Right. And, and we know a few, a few of them and we can we can identify the pathways and that's great, but it's so much more than that. Right. So, so I, I don't think we can mimic it with just this thing. The other thing that I'll say is that none of that was done by the people that I spoke with or anybody around the world. They didn't take any esters. They didn't really think about ketones. They didn't think about fasting as a way to extend life. Right. So we're just kind of trying to figure things out in the scientific world with some of this stuff. So my whole take on on all of this stuff. Right. And this comes down to resveratrol, which has been shown to be a big bust, by the way. If you haven't looked at David Sinclair and his work, not good. Um, basically fraudulent uh, up the wazoo in the, in the tune of like billions and billions of dollars that a pharmaceutical company had to eat. Uh, too bad for them. Um, you know, NAD is now coming under fire as a direct source of like, eh, we're not so sure. NMN looks to be pretty good, maybe NR, but the NAD pathway. So my point to this is that we're constantly looking at all these things, thinking we understand what's happening. And the truth is, is that we don't. There's so much going on and we're learning and that's great. And it's, it's worth studying. And I think there's some things, but, but a lot of the studies are flawed. A lot of the studies, as you pointed out, can be biased. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all have biases, right? That's just the way it is. We're human. We can't exclude that. But the, the, the premise can be flawed. The conclusion can be flawed. And then not only that, it can be extended by the media and the sort of more sort of scientific media, let's say, and then carried through. And then you, this is what happens with things like resveratrol. And all of a sudden, it's the latest craze that everybody's jumping on, including me. I jumped on it. You know, for years, I thought, oh, resveratrol, great. This is sirtuins and blah, blah, blah doesn't turns out it was kind of not really true right and so we can all get hyped up on these molecules and and what i would say is hold it all lightly like you know the real gold here caloric restriction fasting fasting windows right this is something why because it's something we've done for thousands of years. It's something we see show up in religious communities, different religious uh, uh, um, organizations or beliefs and traditions have, have inculcated this into their practices, right? So there's something, and, and a lot of the sort of shamans and things that I've worked with and, and I've they actually say that, that, that fasting is a spiritual payment. In other words, it's something, and you find this in the religious worlds, right? Like it's actually something we do. So. There's interest, there's deeper stuff here. I think we could get out of this sort of molecule based reality and start to open ourselves up to a deeper reality. And when we do something like intermittent fasting or maybe a three day fast, or maybe even longer if we can, and we can do water only, or we can do no water fast, right? For a certain period of time. And that shows in the scientific literature, some really interesting things. When you engage with these things, you find mental things start to come up, right? Mm -hmm. When you go into these cleanses, you know, I do um, like Ayurvedic cleanse, like a 10-day Ayurvedic panchakarma, which is just eating kitchari, which is kind of mung, mung dal and, and rice um, with some turmeric and other things. 
and you do some other cleansing aspects. But as you cleanse the body, as you detox the body, as you go through these fasting windows, you'll see emotional processes start to come up. You might get really depressed or really anxious or have, you know, you might start to cry. Like there's all kinds of things you watch people go through. And so to me, that's where, that's more interesting, right? Like, sure, there's changes the microbiota level. Like, so that, so I'd be asking the question there, what's happening with the microbes if we, if we take these things, um, you know, exogenously versus going to fast? Well, if we fast, then we know the microbes in the gut particularly change dramatically, right? They express totally different things. Things come into balance. There's more diversification. So that's more interesting. Like look at the lifestyle. We're trying to mimic too much. We're trying to biohack too much. And that's that's what science does. That's what medical systems do is they, they try to find a solution to something natural so they can make money off of it. And there's an industry. Otherwise it wouldn't get funded. Like that's just the reality. And you know this, right? It's like, we don't study like melatonin is one of my favorite things ever, and we don't study it. And it's like in the, in the longevity research, it's one of the most promising molecules ever. It regrows the thymus. Thymus gland starts to shrink when you're 13 years old. So we lose thymic function, which is T cell function and other things. We lose that at 13, it goes downhill quick. Melatonin regrows that. There's an intimate connection between the pineal gland and the thymus gland. So there's really fascinating stuff, but nobody studies melatonin because you can't make money, you can't patent it. So we gotta be really careful with these things. I think I look at them with interest. I'm really curious about them. Like I said, I take some ketones, um, you know, and when I do some fasted workouts or what have you, I do think there's some signaling that is beneficial, but I don't hang my hat on that, right? I'd actually rather hang my hat on eating in the proper windows, reducing my, you know, eating in the, the, the proper way, not too much food, right? Um, overloading my system and, and creating digestive issues, right? Eating in the proper windows, all these things, I like think that's more interesting. And then, and then doing these sort of periodic fastings or cleanses in Ayurvedic and Panchakarma, you would you do this cleanse or detox kind of period when the, when the seasons change, because these sort of buildup of energies then can get cleansed and moved through and balanced. So, so to me, there's deeper wisdoms here. If we look at Ayurveda, if we look at Chinese medicine, we look at the traditional indigenous societies, even the religious uh, cultures and societies. What are they doing? What has been done for thousands of years, and why? So don't just do it, but like figure out what's going on. And it turns out the science that we know about explains it really well, right? So, so to me, I think there's there's just more interesting ways to get to the core of what, of, of what we're looking at here with some of these studies, which isn't to make them wrong. It just makes them a little bit limited in what they're really telling us. That's awesome. I, well, I love everything you're saying. We could, I think we could go on for like five hours. Um, and I love how you talk about Ayurvedic medicine. I went back after I was a a private practice OBGYN for many years and did an integrative medicine fellowship and, um, at the Andrew Wall university of Arizona school of integrative oh, nice. medicine. And so we, you know, we do some Ayurvedic, some Eastern medicine. Um, I'm certified in, um, acupuncture, auricular acupuncture. And so, um, really? it's Good funny as like a, as a, you know, Western medical pr practitioner, like we think of some of so many of these things as just like kind of woo, because we don't, like, that's not how we're trained. They did actually in my traditional medical training, they did bring in, um, like a Reiki, uh, master and some other people. We had like one day basically of like these alternative therapies. And, um, but it's interesting to hear you talk about it because I think that like, there's lots of pathways to healing and like, it's different for everybody. And I do think we get so hyper-focused sometimes on like what we're eating and how we're moving and, um, if you're not dealing with all this other stuff, like it still has a profound impact on your health. So I love, I love what you're doing, Jason. So tell people, first of all, how to find the human longevity project. 
yeah, they can go to uh, awakenedhealthacademy.com. And that's a place where I have all, a lot of my content and, and host the, uh, the film series there. How long does it take to sit down and watch the, it's a nine part series? It's a nine part series. It's probably 13 hours of like really intense educational content with some fun mixed in, but, but each episode is, you know, an hour, hour and a half. And so it's, um, it's digestible in that way. Okay. So you guys, I have learned recently, uh, Jim quick, I'm a huge follower of Jim quick. Uh, so your brain can only focus for like 25 minutes. So sit down and watch this episode 25 minutes and then, you know, maybe do some stretching or some push-ups totally. or something and then go back in the next 25 minutes. Uh, cause that's probably an amazing amount of information There's to, a lot. to yeah, digest. Yeah. yeah. If you like, if you like the, the intellectual kind of understanding of some of this and why to do some of these things, um, we had, we had so many brilliant experts that we interviewed to, to help communicate that message. And it's, it's, it's amazing. Honestly, they, they did a really good job and we, we pulled it together nicely, I think in, in a way that's, that's understandable. Amazing. Okay. And then tell people how they can find you on social media or how they can work with you as a practitioner. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, um, about my book, uh, beyondlongevitybook.com is where they can find that. So if they're interested in that, it comes out. Is it out? It's out? It's coming out? It's December like, 27th. At the time we're okay. recording this is not out yet, but it's it's available for pre-sale. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's you find that at Amazon, any bookstores. Um, and then social media, they can find me on Instagram. Uh, Human Longevity Project is probably the best place they can find me. And, and same thing with, with Facebook. I don't do a ton of social media, to be honest. Um, uh, more through my own email list and, and working with people that, that I uh, interact with there. Um, but yeah, they can find me there. That might be a, that might be a smart strategy. I won't lie. <laughs> it's, it's a deep, deep, dark hole some days. It yeah. Is. Well, Jason, this has been so wonderful. And thank you for everybody listening. If you found this helpful, please share it with somebody. Cause we really depend on all of you to help share these messages with the world. So thank you guys. And we'll catch on the next episode. Did you guys love that last episode of the fit and fabulous podcast? Well, of course you did. And I want to keep bringing you the most amazing content from the most incredible people. And you can help me by subscribing to the Dr. Fit and Fabulous channel. You guys know where the button is. Just click it. It's the doctor's orders.